0: What a blessing to see these kids go back to be taught the Word of God, to be taught the Gospel, and then to see the faces of the kids who are in here being taught God's Word, God's Gospel. We just praise God for His grace in the lives of our kids, you know, that they are being raised by Christian parents. That is so something to be incredibly grateful for. On behalf of our kids. Not in a prideful way like, well, you have Christian parents. But in a way that just thanks God for his good providence. That he would position our children in such proximity to God's truth. So we thank him for that. If you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans 9, verses 30 to 33. We're at the very end of this chapter. And the boundary between Romans 9 and 10 is pretty fluid so it really just sort of keeps going. And by the way, that's always the case uh, for the biblical writers because there were no chapters, there were no verses in the original writings. And so uh, we, we have throughout history these divisions of sections and that ultimately became chapters and verses and commentators debate over the accuracy of that. But uh, the original writings were just... Uh, Rational pieces of discourse inspired by the Holy Spirit, and 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 they they showed forth the character, the personality of the author, and so you get very different kind of writing when you read Paul uh, as compared to someone like the Apostle John. So uh, the boundary is fluid, but we come nonetheless to the end of this chapter, uh, chapter nine. For several weeks now, we've been talking a lot about this theme of God's sovereignty, about the topic of predestination, about election and reprobation, about God's sovereign will and choice. That has been the topic now for several weeks. And uh, this is not because this is a theological hobby horse for us, uh, that's not the reason we've been talking about this for the last several weeks. We've been talking about this because that's what Paul's been talking about in his letter to the Romans. And once again, I just want to say this is the, one of the great value, uh, values of expository preaching or of exposition of Scripture is that it protects the church from the theological hobby horses of uh, its preacher or its preachers. So that you must deal with the logic of the author as it unfolds in its entirety, not this lopsided understanding of of what's being uh, communicated, but we must deal with it as it unfolds from book to book. And so, we are talking a lot about God's predestination, election or reprobation, and I do think both of those things are biblical, election and reprobation. We are talking about those because that's what Paul deals with throughout most of Romans chapter 9. So, let me just give you a few verses that we've covered. And by the way, it would be easy to enter into a debate with someone and just assault them with these verses, isolate it. It's not my intention here just to isolate these. We have treated them in context uh, from sentence to sentence, phrase to phrase, but I just want to give you these to help you see what it is I'm talking about with this theme of God's sovereignty. So verses 15 to 16 of chapter 9, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. And then we get verse 18, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and then here I think is the reprobation part, and He hardens whomever He wills. And then to be even clearer, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So some of the things Paul says in chapter 9 are hard to hear, and they cause us to ask lots of questions, many of which we don't have answers to, quite frankly. But this is what we have seen, I think, so clearly in Romans 9. God is in control. He is sovereign in choosing and preparing For his glory. The great theme of the universe is the glory of God. We've we've sung that this morning. God's glory is what everything is about. From him and to him. From him, through him, to him. Everything is about God, from God and to God. He is the sovereign potter as we saw a few weeks ago. That was the title of the sermon a few weeks ago. But... You say, how can you say, but? But there is another side to this discussion that should not be neglected. And that is the side of human responsibility, which we're going to look at in more detail today. I think we move from a God's sovereignty being the upfront theme uh, with regard to what is going on with Israel and the Gentiles, and the going out of the gospel. We move from God's sovereignty as being the, uh, the theme that's pushed forward to now moving to human responsibility. <clears throat> the Bible holds these two great truths together. Number one, nothing happens apart from God's will. Nothing. And a second truth, human beings are themselves responsible for what they choose and do. I hear people sometimes talk about uh, uh, it's not about deciding. Well, of course it is. We must decide for Christ. Billy Graham was not wrong to stand up and call people to make a decision for Christ. To decide to follow Jesus. We must decide to follow Christ in our very will. We must choose Him over the world. We must count the cost. We must weigh it out and grab hold of Christ by faith. Human beings are themselves responsible for what they choose and do. And although these truths seem to contradict one another... Scripture holds them together as compatible. These two great truths of the Bible are compatible with one another, though it boggles the mind. And just to give you a couple of other examples, this is not new. This should not surprise a Bible reader. This should not surprise an Orthodox Christian, someone who believes God's truth, reads God's truth, knows God's truth, because we find this throughout the Bible. Uh, Just to give you an example, the Trinity, How in the world can God be both one and three? He is one God in three persons. Figure that one out with your reason, oh man. You're not going to. You're not going to figure that one out. There's been all kinds of attempts to to demonstrate it and explain it. Augustine explaining it psychologically and, of course, Patrick, as he goes to Ireland, trying to use uh, a three-leaf clover to explain. All, all kinds of ways that, that can be fruitful and helpful, but they all fall short. All these metaphors, all these analogies for the Trinity fall short. It is a mysterious truth that seems to defy logic. But it is truth. But think about also the, what's called the hypostatic union. The person of Christ, the union within his person of two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. That Christ in one person, only one person, not two persons, one person has two natures. He is God and he is man. He is truly God, fully God, and he is truly, fully man. So for example, in the early church, you had people who would say, well, uh, the word, the second person of the Trinity comes and, and is, is like the soul inside of the body of Christ. Error. That's not true. Why? Because in order for Christ to be human, he must have a human soul and a human body. So we're not talking about the word becoming the soul, the spiritual part of Christ's person, and then there's the human outside part. Maybe you believe that. That's not the case. He's fully human, and all that that entails, though without sin, and he is fully human. God. He did not give up his deity, Philippians 2, some have misinterpreted that. He did not give up his deity or empty himself of his deity to become man. He added to his divine nature a human nature and took on those limitations in his human existence. Both of these defy our understanding. They, they, they trouble our minds. They boggle our minds. But, but that is what the Bible teaches. And the same is true of the compatibility Of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me give you a quote from John MacArthur, where he is speaking of these two truths coming together. He says, This, from the human standpoint, there is a tension, even a seeming contradiction between those two realities. By human reasoning, they seem mutually exclusive. But both of them are clearly taught in god 's Word, and when one is emphasized, this is important when one is emphasized to the exclusion of the other, the gospel is invariably perverted. Yes, and we see throughout history groups who uh, exclude one, they exalt one and exclude the other. I was recently talking with one of our members here, uh, Bert Funk, and we were having a, a good conversation at the gym and Uh, we were discussing how some people will say, will often say, uh, they'll they'll cite the robot. You know, you get that word when you talk about this question. They'll, they'll, They'll use the robot illustration. Well, if God is in control of our choices, then we are just robots. So Bert and I were talking about how we've heard people say that before. If God is in control of our choices, then we are just robots. You've probably heard that and probably have said that even. I have heard it many times. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't teach that kind of incompatibility. That's that's wrong. The Bible gives us compatibility, not incompatibility, between these truths. What we find here when someone says that is finite human reasoning trying to stand on its own two feet alone. This is rationalism. This is human reasoning trying to stand up as the arbiter of truth, and if human reason can't figure it out, then it's not true. It must be re-evaluated. We've all heard that before. No, they are compatible, and we find them throughout Scripture. The title for the sermon today is The Human Responsibility Under the Divine Sovereignty. You'll see that there, the human responsibility under the divine sovereignty. I have worded it this way, and admittedly, it is quite clunky. I apologize for that. Uh, but I've worded it this way because Paul has made clear that the ultimate reason why Israel has largely rejected the Lord and why the Gentiles are streaming in, the reason for this has to do with God's sovereign choice to show mercy to some, the Gentiles, and to harden others, Israel, apart from the remnant. So we have the Gentiles and the remnant of Israel shown mercy according to God's electing purposes on the one hand. And then we have, on the other hand, the hardening of Israel corporately, largely. That is what we have seen as we've gone excuse me, as we've gone through chapter nine. And so last week, we looked at the reversal that has taken place for the Gentiles. Those who were not shown mercy, who were not loved, as it were, in relationship with God, have been now shown mercy. Those who were not God's people have been made God's people. And we saw that with Israel, they had not God preserved a remnant, would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was what we... Looked at last week, the reversal and the remnant. But underneath God's electing purposes, what we find in our passage for today, verses 30 to 33, is an emphasis on the human side of things, if you will, the human response, the human responsibility. In other words, there are two compatible ways to answer the question, why? Let me say that again, because I think it's really important for us. There are two compatible ways. To answer the question, why? Why has Israel rejected the Lord? And why is it that all of these uh, depraved Gentiles living in idolatry are now streaming into God's people? What in the world is going on? Well, there are two ways to answer that question. And they are compatible, though they seem to be at odds With one another. We've seen the first part of that answer dealing with God's election, and now we're going to the second part, which deals with human responsibility. So, if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. And yes, yes, we're gonna do it. We're gonna read all of chapter nine. You guys were wondering, I can tell. Um, But I I do hope, and, and let me just say this. It is so important that uh, we are Bible believers and not preacher followers. And so uh, here's the thing. I, I want to do my very best to explain what it is that Paul is saying. But at the end of the day, who cares what Lonnie is saying? What matters is what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see it as it unfolds before I go into talking about it so that if I do take it out of context, you'll be able to call me out on that this week. Text me, call me, you know, just we'll talk about it. I hope that does not happen, Uh, but if it does, then we need to address it. Okay, so Romans chapter 9, beginning in uh, in verse 1. This is God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And now for our passage for today, verses 30 to 33. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God and ask for his grace this morning as we uh, preach and hear preaching and that God's word would be clear to us and, and that he would use it by his spirit to sanctify us. And if there's anyone among us this morning, we, we're going to pray that God would save them. If anyone who's not saved, not converted, who is not in Christ but still in Adam, that God would be merciful to them this very day and use his word as he promises to do to save them. So let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning, Lord. You are the living God. All other gods are idols. They are impotent. They can do nothing. But you are omnipotent. You can do nothing. All things. Father, we worship you as our God. You are our King, our Redeemer. You are our heavenly Father. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, that you have called us out of darkness into light, that you have raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places. We thank you that you have justified us by faith that you are sanctifying us day by day and that you will ultimately conform us into the image of your son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God, we thank you that you are with us now. Your presence is here, Father. and It's an amazing thing to think that you are present with us right now. This is not just a club meeting or some sort of philosophical society. This is... The, the, the temple, the, the spiritual temple of the living God, the people of God gathered. And Lord, you are here with us. We are together, your temple, and individually. God, we praise you for that, and we ask that you would work among us this morning. Work in the hearts of our kids listening uh, during this sermon, Lord. Work in the hearts of the kids in the back who are being taught your word. Uh, work in all of our hearts as adults. Show us our sin and help us To live holy lives, lives that are devoted to you, lives that are zealous for good works. We ask you this morning, Father, to save any among us who are unconverted. We pray you would be merciful to our children, that they would be vessels of mercy uh, for your eternal glory. And we pray that those among us this morning, any who is unsaved, God, you alone can save. You alone can turn the lights on in a heart you alone can say, let there be light. And so God, would you do that this morning in the hearts of any among us who is unconverted. Uh, Lord, we pray that your word would be understood and that we would respond to it in faith and as doers, not mere hearers. We praise you for this time. We pray that it would be used well by all of us, that we would be good stewards of this time. In Christ's name, amen. So, we have a simple outline for today. Uh, two things that we see as we consider the human responsibility component under the divine sovereignty, which is what we've just gone through, and two simple points the situation and the reason. That's what Paul lays out for us as we go through these verses. So, let's look first at the situation. Look at verses 30 to 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. What we have here are two peoples, two pursuits, and two attainments, or I should say more accurately, two outcomes concerning attainment, two peoples, two pursuits, and two attainments. Paul has been talking a lot about God's purposes, but now he zooms in on the ground. We have been up in the heavenly council, the council of God's own mind. We have looked at God's electing purposes. And now we are zooming down on the ground, and God gives us through Paul the situation on the ground, on the human level. In these verses, he's telling us what's happening in his own day as the gospel is being proclaimed. The gospel is being preached. Remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel? Jesus commissions his apostles go make disciples. Spread my gospel, baptize, uh, that there would be a, a proliferation of, of growth in Christ's church. And we see on the day of Pentecost that, that first where, where actually they're not going. The, the nations, the, the, the Jews of the nations, the Jews who are scattered about are there In Jerusalem, and Peter preaches, and so many, 3,000 are saved. And from that, it just continues and continues and continues to grow. So much so that Christianity overwhelmed the Roman Empire. So that by the time you get to the 4th century, you've got the problem of nominal Christianity in the Roman Empire. It is insane to consider that in that space of time, This persecuted sect that worshipped a crucified criminal, at least from the Romans' perspective, has now taken over the empire such that the Roman Emperor Constantine confesses faith in Christ. Whether he was truly or not is up for discussion. But what we see is the outworking of the proclamation of this gospel that begins after Christ had ascended to heaven. And what we get in the book of Acts is Christ's ministry being extended by the Spirit through the apostles. And so this has been happening. Christ has been working through the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the apostles, and the gospel is being proclaimed. Now remember, Paul is the best person to describe this situation. Paul is uniquely placed to deal with what he is dealing with. Why do I say that? Well, on the one hand, Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews who is steeped in Pharisaic Judaism. If you were to have hovered over Judaism, over Palestine in particular, uh, Israel, uh, at the time of Paul, and you were to say, where, where is ground zero? Where is it all happening for the Jews? Where, what's the most religious bunch of people? You would probably find folks like the Pharisees. We see them often in the Gospels. Jesus is their greatest critic. And Paul was one of them. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. The Pharisees were super serious. In all the wrong ways, as we see in Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees, multiple times, but they were serious about what they were doing. And Paul was right in the middle of all that. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we read that Paul Paul describes himself this way. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was right up in the middle of it all. In his former life before Christ, Paul embodied the mindset of Israel in his time. And so he knows firsthand what is going on with the Jews. He knows firsthand better than anybody what is happening in the Jewish mindset. But on the other hand, he has been called by the Lord to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So in some ways, nobody would be more appropriate to be apostle to the Jews than Paul. But that's not God's calling for him. God's calling for him is to be apostle to the Gentiles. And that is what he's been doing. More than any other person in the New Testament, Paul has been involved in the conversion of Greek-speaking pagan peoples around the Mediterranean. No one more than Paul has been involved in that work. And it is this man, a Hebrew of Hebrews and the apostle to the Gentiles who explains what's happening. What's happening on the human level as the gospel is going forth. And there are two things happening. He outlines in these verses. So here they are. You write them down and we'll talk about each of them. First, success without pursuit. And second, failure with pursuit. Success without pursuit and failure with pursuit. So let's look first at success without pursuit. And for that, we need to go to verse 30 again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. If you want to understand what the Gentiles were about, what they were pursuing in life, you need to look no further than Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. You remember that? You remember that horrific passage uh, that we get at the end of Romans 1? Paul is explaining universal human sinfulness, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where he gets to, that's where he gets in his conclusion in chapter three. But prior to that, he explains the sinfulness of Gentiles and Jews alike. And the spotlight at the end of Romans one falls on the Gentiles. Suppression of truth, rampant idolatry, sexual perversion, inner depravity, social and domestic breakdown, hatred and violence. Go and read at the end of Romans 1. You want to know what the Gentiles are pursuing over and above what Jesus says in Matthew 6, what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear. Over and above those basic things that they were certainly pursuing, we have this kind of life at the end of Romans 1. I've recently started reading the Iliad, and it's a book I you know, that ancient Greek piece of literature by Homer. And it's something that I've dipped into over the years in school. You know, everyone at least has, has to read some of that at some point. But I've decided recently to go through and read it. It's an incredibly uh, enthralling story and uh, incredible work of literature. But one of the things that we see in that is just an a awful jumble of human sinfulness an awful jumble of everything I just described being played out. And this becomes even more, uh, I I think, illustrative when you consider that something like the Iliad and the Odyssey, these were sort of the Bibles for the Greeks. They played a role in Greek civilization similar to the way that works like the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and, and the Bible as a whole have played in the history of Western civilization. So the society as a whole, this is the well that they are drinking from, the spring that they are drinking from. And as I said before, it is just a a window into the rottenness and depravity of humankind, and particularly the Greek peoples at that time. That's what they're pursuing. Whatever the Gentiles were pursuing when the gospel began to make its way around the Mediterranean world, it wasn't righteousness. It wasn't being right with the living God, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, in the context of this lack of pursuit, there was success. Isn't that amazing? This is what's happening. Remember, God justifies the ungodly. Well, that they were indeed. Living this ungodly life, and all of a sudden, we see success They begin to come to faith in Christ. Paul tells the Thessalonians, which I mentioned many times before, you turned from idols to serve the living God. Well, that's the story of the churches scattering the Mediterranean world. These Greek-speaking, largely Gentile people turning from those pursuits to Christ. Success. Those who did not pursue being right, with God, who were not involved in a religious enterprise to please the God of Abraham, ended up being the ones who found righteousness. That's what Paul says in verse 30. They were made right with God. And we talked last week about how God's electing purposes is what lies behind that. They didn't just, they didn't just go and get it. God, in his electing purposes and in his sovereign grace, called the Gentiles, as we saw last week to himself to put their faith in Christ. Well, how? I just said it. How did they attain this thing that they didn't even run after? Faith. By faith. They were declared righteous by faith alone. The gospel went out to these people. They had zero religious capital. They had zero religious Reserves. Nothing. And in fact, they were far, far, far deep in the negatives. And they took hold of the gospel by faith and were radically saved. Radically saved. As we see in those early centuries, those formerly pagan people standing before magistrates and emperors declaring, I am a Christian. And suffering. Horrific deaths because of their faith in Christ. They were radically transformed. They believed, as we see in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. And, of course, as we see there, faith itself is a gift of God. God gave them faith, and they trusted in the living God. Let me just say this. That is the great burden for the hearer. As you're listening to this sermon today, as we're encountering this passage of Scripture, the great burden for the hearer is faith alone, to trust in Christ alone. There is no other way to be made right with God. There's no other way to have peace with God but by faith. And let me just say this. This is not just the great burden of the hearer who has not found faith, has not found Christ, who has not, as we see here with the Gentiles, uh, succeeded, as it were, in something they did not pursue. But this is also the great battle for daily Christian living. This is so important for us. We oftentimes think faith alone, faith in Christ, is how you enter into the Christian life. But then after that, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of things that you should be about. No, 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 no. It's always the case that we must center ourselves on faith alone, not reliance on ourselves. Because here's the thing if we look to ourselves, we're always going to be disappointed with what we find. But we should be. We must bear up underneath the trials of life and the temptations that we face. And the failures of our lives, growth and failure, all the while living a life of faith alone in Christ alone. This is the great foundation for Christian living, not just for Christian being. Let me say something else about this. We must call people to believe, we must call people to respond to the gospel. Message. Now this doesn't mean praying some little package prayer right then and there and then you look at them and say they're saved. You give them a couple booklets and congratulations, pat them on the back. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that whole infrastructure of uh, easy believism that's so much a part of American evangelicalism. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But what I am talking about is that we must call people to believe. This is the human responsibility component. We must call people to respond. They must Trust Christ. They must have faith in Christ. Sometimes I hear reform people talk about conversion as though we're just sitting around waiting on God to zap us from heaven. What? That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the New Testament did. The New Testament calls us. The gospel goes out and it beckons us. It calls us come, trust, believe, repent. We're not just sitting around waiting on God to do something. We are told what we need to do, and that is to repent and believe in the gospel. That is what Jesus himself said when he came on the scene at the beginning Mark 1.15. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that as the gospel has gone gone out, that's what many Gentiles have indeed done. They have chosen Christ. They have believed on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So second, we see failure with pursuit. So we've seen success without pursuit. Now we see failure with pursuit, Look at verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. While the Gentiles were living in idolatry, the Jews were busy pursuing. Oh, they were pursuing. But what were they pursuing? A law that would lead to righteousness. They were pursuing God's holy law... As a means of attaining right standing with God. The law has commands, and so they set out to abide by those commands in order to be right with God. But this pursuit, of course, ends in failure. They were not able. To arrive at or reach the law, the law could not give them right standing with God. The law could not give them righteousness. As fallen sinners, they were unable, entirely unable to satisfy the demands of God's holy law. And we've seen this a lot. But This was a a big part of our discussion chapters ago. But we saw this especially in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, it's, it's the only, Christianity is unique in this respect. There are a lot of things that make Christianity unique. Apologetically, I can remember talking uh, with our children about this, just that Christian, one of the things that, that marks Christianity off from every other religion in the world is that it is, it is, it is a grace system. It is not a works righteousness system. It's not a system where you basically earn your way to to God by keeping some standard, whether that be the Mosaic Law or any other standard. That's not the way it works. That is the way it works in religion, human religion in general. But Christianity is about God's grace. It's centered on looking away from ourselves to what another did, not to what we have done So that's the situation on the ground. But now Paul gives the reason. And specifically the reason why Israel did not attain the law. So we come now to our second point, the reason. We've seen the situation. Gentiles succeeding, that is, attaining righteousness. Right? Standing before God, but by faith. And we've seen Israel not attaining that thing they sought after. Why? Why? And that leads us to verses 32 to 33. Paul begins, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here, Paul answers that big question, why? Why did Israel fail to reach the law in its pursuit? And he gives two reasons. And by the way, in previous verses, he's answered that question, why, in this way. God's election. That's his big answer up to this point. But now he's answering the question on the human level, why? And he gives two reasons specifically for Israel's failure. And here they are, number one, no faith, and number two, no foundation. So we're going to look at each of those as we finish up this morning. First, no faith. Why did Israel fail to attain what it was running after? There's a lot of running language in this, in this passage. A lot of sort of you think about Olympian type scenes, you know, chasing after, pursuing, running after, and then attaining and so forth. Why did Israel fail to attain what it was running after? And the answer is because their approach to the law, as I said a moment ago, was one of work's righteousness. Their approach to the law said this. If I do this, then God will accept me. If I do this, then God will approve of me. And here's what's underlying all of that. If I do this, God must accept me. Do you see that? That's there. That's packed in. If I do this, God will accept me. If I do this, God will approve of me. I'll be right with him. I'll be able, when I stand before him, to give an accounting of all of my glory before his glory. I'll be able to explain to him why it is that he should let me in. He must do it as long as I do my part. God will do His part if you do your part. Where do we get this stuff? Where do we get this stuff? God will do His part if you do your part. It fails to take human sin and God's holiness seriously. This whole mindset actually thinks that we can do far more than we ever imagined. It it makes us think that we can actually make it. Here's the thing about uh, the heart when you become a Christian, and you've experienced this if you're a believer. We do absolutely nothing that is not tainted by sin. I've never given something to another person and not been tainted by sin in my heart. I have never served the Lord in any way and not been tainted by my own pride. I have never gone about my day, gone about my life in such a way that I've done anything for the Lord that is not stained by the wickedness of my own fallen heart. And the same is true of you. And as we become Christians and as we grow in the Lord, we see that more and more and more. And even as I say it about myself, I am... Sp- it is such an understatement because there's so many things even in my own heart that I don't yet see. And we will continue to see more and more the network. Oh, and it's a network, the web of sin and deceit and idolatry and self-serving. And oh, we could go on and on that is in the hearts of us all. And what a wonder that God takes those stained works and he actually exalts them to a place that he will one day reward us for them, for his glory. That's incredible grace. Incredible grace from the Lord. But works righteousness knows nothing of that. Works righteousness actually thinks that when they do it, they should get a point, a dojo point. As we see, those of you who have kids in school, you get the dojos, right? So, God is giving dojo points up in heaven when we do this or that. That's a a very flawed understanding of human nature. The other problem is God's holiness. God is is absolutely perfect and holy. He only accepts perfection. Not our little rinky-dinky efforts at trying to do what God's called us to do. Perfection. 100% gleaming, glorious perfection. That's it. That's it. Praise God for Christ. He's the only perfect one. Work's righteousness leads to that nasty sin of the heart called pride. And this pride takes the form of boasting. Boasting is the evidence of pride in the heart. Notice how intent Paul is to undermine boasting when he preaches the gospel of God's grace received through faith. He says this in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Here's the purpose. So that no one may boast. There will there won't be a single soul in heaven, the new heaven, new earth, who has any inclination whatsoever to boast. Zero. God's purposes redemptively are to smash out and eradicate any basis for boasting. We get that at the end of Romans 11. We will have so much to praise God for for eternity because we will have absolutely nothing to boast about. Romans chapter 3, 27 to 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works righteousness is all about the pride of life. Remember those three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We saw them in Eve's heart, Adam's as well, implied, and we see them in our own hearts, Works righteousness is a really sweet drink to the pride of life. And that's what is going on here. What has happened to Israel on the human level? They have failed to believe. Instead of trusting in the work of Christ, another, they have trusted in the work of self. Instead of believing in God and receiving His righteous standing by faith, As Father Abraham had, they have trusted in their own works. That is their great security. The law that was meant to show sin, increase faith, and point to Christ had become a lifeboat of self-reliance and self-righteousness. And they were just oaring themselves along in their own goodness. So let me ask you this question. How do you view your works, your efforts? This is a way to test yourself, whether you're a Christian or not. Are you in that mindset? Do you view your works and your efforts? Does, do, do you think to yourself, you know, as you think about where you're at spiritually and what's going to become of you if you were to die this afternoon, for example, you think, well... Uh, Yeah, I've done this, I've done that. If that's where your mind goes, you you need Christ. You need to be saved. Because if that's where your mind goes, that should tell you right there immediately that you, you, you don't know the grace of God. You know only a life of trying to earn something from God that Christ has already given freely in himself on the cross. And that God extends for you to receive by faith. So when when your mind goes to, to, to when your mind's thinking about where what's going to come of what's going to become of me what, where am I going after I die, Christ, faith in Christ is where our minds must go. He is our lifeboat, not our works, and that leads us to our second part of this last point, and that is no foundation. So what is the problem? What is the why? No faith and no foundation. In these verses Paul gives a twofold reason why Israel did not attain its goal. The first, we just saw, no faith. But now Paul moves to the foundation stone. Look at the end of verses 32 to 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is here blending together two quotations from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 28, verse 16, and chapter 8, verse 14. And what's interesting is Peter quotes from these more extensively in 1 Peter chapter 2. When we saw that read earlier, Adam read that for us. Says, uh, Peter quotes from those same passages in Isaiah And in Peter and in Isaiah, Christ is presented as the cornerstone or the foundation stone. Now, Paul doesn't say that explicitly here. His focus is is, is, uh, on the second part of that. But Christ is presented in these passages as the foundation stone or in Isaiah, the Lord of hosts. And I think it's a Christological passage referring to Christ. But God has placed this cornerstone... Along the path of Israel's self-righteousness as a stumbling stone. So what you need to imagine is Israel as a nation, largely as a people, they're traveling along this path called self-righteousness, called works righteousness. And right smack dab in the middle of that path, God the Father drops Christ. Drops Christ right in the middle of that path as... A stumbling stone. Rather than embrace Christ as the foundation, they have stumbled over him as a rock of offense. They have taken offense at Christ and his gospel. Paul pulls these two things together in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So their foundation was works righteousness. It was the law and their law keeping. But the cornerstone is Christ. And no one can lay a foundation other than Christ. So they are left without a foundation. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 22 to 23 he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews... And folly to Gentiles. But he ends on this note. Those who do accept Christ. Who are not offended at him. Do not stumble. But for them. They can be certain. That they will never be put to shame. What confidence we have in life and death. What is our only hope in life and death. And death. Well, we have the catechism answer, but the one answer is Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? It is Christ. He is our foundation stone. He is the cornerstone. And everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In the end, your trust in Christ is safe. Because the object of your faith is certain And he cried out so loudly on the cross. It is finished. One of the reasons that uh, this is a side note. One of the reasons that, that I, I don't like that, that phrase in the later version of the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. Because uh, people will say, well, there's two ways to explain that. One is uh, that he descended in, into hell just simply means he bore the wrath of God on the cross. But the phrases before that already entail that. He died, he was crucified, he was buried, he, he died on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God, he drank the cups. It's already covered. You don't need descended into hell to cover that one. And then historically, some have said, well, uh, that he descended into hell to liberate those who were uh, somehow captive, and he's going to bring them to heaven, or that he needed to descend into hell in order to conquer hell for us. No. To the last point, we read the words of Christ. It is finished. Christ took care of sin and death and hell on the tree. He did not need to descend into Hades in order to make that complete. But as I said, that's, that's a side note. As we conclude this morning, we see that we must circle back to God's sovereignty. So we, we can't camp out too long on human responsibility to the neglect of God's sovereignty. So, even at the end of this passage, which is fo- focusing on the human level or the human response, we still see God's sovereignty all over it. Who laid this stumbling stone in Zion? God did. And God laid this stumbling stone in Zion for a purpose, He laid it among His people in order that they might stumble that he might open salvation to the Gentiles and show his mercy now to a remnant and later to the nation as a whole. And that's where we go into chapter 10 and 11. God is sovereignly working out his purposes through human choices, human actions, as divine sovereignty and human responsibility come compatibly together. Let me give you four things to take home as we finish up this morning. First, know that God's sovereignty does not relieve you of the responsibility to respond rightly, right now, to the gospel. You have a responsibility, hearer, to listen and to heed and to do, to choose rightly. Christian, Your faith is a gift of God that originates in His merciful election. So don't start gloating about the fact that you have faith and others do not. Where does it originate? In God's merciful electing purposes. Without Him, you would be as lost as anybody else. On your way to hell, no affections for God, living for yourself. And thirdly, works are not our security. Faith in Christ is the only way to be made right with God and this goes for the beginning of the Christian life and all the way through faith in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I love that verse. Romans 3, verse 25. One of the best verses in all the Bible, I think. And finally, let me just read these words again because they are so precious. I know in moments of struggle in my own life, moments of temptation to, to lose hope or to not hold fast, these words are so precious to me. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What security we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for this teaching from the Apostle Paul. Lord, thank you for reminding us that we are saved by grace, through faith, and not by our works. Help us, Father, to trust you as Christians. Help us to look to Christ and to serve and do in a vibrant way because we have complete confidence in the sufficiency and the finality of Christ's work as he died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that all that we have must be traced back to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.